to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking, what next? I'm Christina Patterson, and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape, and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Governor B, multi-award winning rapper, author, and broadcaster. He's released 10 albums, including Secret World, Hands Are Made For Working, and Everywhere and Nowhere, which came out last year. He's won two MOBO Awards, three Urban Music Awards, and presented documentaries on radio and TV. He has also published two books, Unpopular Culture and Unspoken. Governor B's real name is Isaac Borke. He talked to me about toxic masculinity, dealing with rejection, and what he has learned about success. I found him truly inspirational. Well, welcome to Work Interrupted. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. No problem at all. Everyone's lives have been obviously interrupted by this pandemic, but artists, musicians, actors, performers and freelancers from a work point of view have been affected more than most. I've had quite a few people on this podcast whose diaries were booked for months ahead and then wiped clear. I imagine the same happened to you. When did you realise how serious it was going to be from a work point of view? So I released um, an album in March uh, 2020 and we had this kind of big press week planned in Shoreditch. Uh, A lot of the press were going to come to, a few fans and that kind of stuff. And then my um, live agent, Live Nation, were about to announce my tour. Actually, they had announced the tour. And then I realized it was serious when they postponed the tour. I think Mm -hmm. up until that moment, obviously there was this, you know, you don't really know what it is or how serious it is. You hear murmurs and that kind of stuff. But yeah, no one really had an idea. And then when the tour got postponed, that's when I knew, oh, this is serious. But even still, I didn't realize, you know, we'd still be here a year, a year later. The tour's actually Mm -hmm. been postponed two, two or three times now. So yeah, it's been a nightmare. I haven't had a gig since March 2020. I mean, the irony is that everywhere and nowhere, the kind of bittersweetness of life is so central to it. You had obviously three terrible bereavements before the pandemic hit. I had had a huge bereavement following various others before the pandemic hit. So I kind of felt like I'd had my pandemic before the pandemic hit. And then you think, seriously, that this thing can't really be happening. Mm. I mean, emotionally for you, how has it where has it been on a kind of emotional scale the pandemic because in in some sense you kind of feel like you can feel like nothing i've been through has been as bad as what i went through before yeah i mean you know having free bereavements obviously took it out of me and emotionally tested me and so you kind of think well if it's not as bad as that then i can get through anything but you know mm. with work um, and I think it's important to say that, you know, people have been through uh, such such a trying time during this pandemic and lost loved ones. And I don't want to, you know, take anything away from that. That's obviously very serious. But I think in my personal life, work is something that's always been a bit of a healthy outlet and a healthy escape for me. And, you know, it's something that I'm privileged to love doing. And so even if there's bereavements and there's things in life that are really difficult, I normally go to work for my release and my outlet and the fact that I can't do that um, definitely affects me emotionally, I'd say. Yes. 
and you became a father in 2019, which must have added to the pressure as a, as a breadwinner. And I think you'd also recently bought a house. I presume you're, you know, afloat because you're still there, but that must have been an anxious time financially as well as everything else, was it? Yeah, I think, you know, no matter what your situation is or how wealthy you are or how much money you haven't got, when there's an extreme change of circumstance, anyone's going to feel anxious. And, you know, thankfully, like I'm surviving and yeah, I haven't got as much money as I should have at this stage. And some months have been tighter than others, but I'm just thankful that, that we're still here. But the interesting thing about my son is he was almost a reminder that yeah things might get difficult but there's silver linings and so you know being at home way more than I would have and not you know touring and being around the world and all that kind of stuff it's meant that I haven't missed you know his first steps or his his first words or any you know magical moments like that I've been here for all of it so I guess you know when I look back I think I'd rather have earned less money and seen all those things then you know um yeah been out and about and, and doing everything so mm. what what were Ezra's first words uh it was I'm pretty sure it was dada but I, oh. I don't I don't know if he knew what he was saying I don't know if he was calling me but it was definitely dada um oh, I have wonderful. to I Emma have to must confirm. have been furious wasn't she <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she was she was pretty furious. She might have a different opinion on what his actual, you know, first <laughs> word is, but Mama. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. And how how much were you able to do in terms of promoting everywhere and nowhere? I mean, did you do some people have done sort of gigs online, but of course, you know, the energy is can't be there and the chemistry isn't there. Have you done anything like that? Yeah, I did um one gig online um with uh, an organization called Stable. I got to go down to their studios and my fans got to buy tickets and that kind of stuff and mm. yeah, it was good to get out of the house and and get performing again. Obviously doesn't, you know, match the energy of having a live audience, but um I was grateful for it nonetheless. And I think we've just adapted, you know, we're as as much stick as, as social media gets, it is good for, for times like this and, and the fact that we can, you know, turn our attention to more digital ways of connecting with each other. Mm. How much of that, when the pandemic is over, obviously, you you know, you do messes on Instagram and social media also, but how much of the kind of live stuff do you think you'll carry on? Do you think you'll do a bit of a mix or, or are you just dying to get back to, uh, you know, the real life stuff and drop the online gigs and promotion? Yeah, I mean, I've always in, enjoyed being online, but for me, you just can't beat face-to-face -face interactions with human beings. There's, yeah, there's just, you just can't beat that for me. And so I think, you know, as soon as I can get back performing, I'll do as much of it as I possibly can. And also, you know, this has been um, a real wake-up call for me. I'm 31 and hopefully I can do music for a few more years but I realized that whenever I do stop I'm gonna miss it a huge amount and so mm. I want to take every opportunity um to soak it up you know um while I still can and and be grateful for every moment that's very wise I think I, I think I mean at least musicians are not limited in the way that say footballers are but I think it's very tough for a lot of people in in sport in football in particular because you have quite a short shelf life but I don't think the same applies in your field but I think for a lot of young men it's a real shock come say come their late 20s early 30s and they can't do the thing they've poured all their energy and passion into but I presume you're going to 
hope to be in this for the long haul, are you? Yeah, I think my my big passion is communication. So yeah. initially, you know, the way I did that was was through music and and that's what comes most naturally to me, but um, you know, during the pandemic I've turned my attention to a few other things that I've always been interested in like radio and documentaries and and broadcasting and presenting programs and that kind of stuff. So mm. I think as long as I've still got a voice, I will find an outlet to to communicate, you know, like just recently written a book and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um but yeah, I'm going to do music for as long as as I can. I'm I'm very much a take every day as it comes person. You know, I tried mm. the whole five year plan, 10 year plan thing. And I think it's good to have loose, loose things in mind. But, you know, life just always throws a curveball. So you've got to be ready yes. to adapt. Yes, exactly. Well, I loved your book and I presume you spent, you know, quite a chunk of of last year producing it in in unspoken you describe yourself as a man a few words well you've just produced 70,000 of them which <laughs> must have been quite a challenge um did you sit down and write did you have a team helping you or how did the how did you put that thing together because it's a ma- I know you're not a big reader it's you know hu- I, obviously you write you write your lyrics but it's a massive leap from that to writing a huge great book what how did it come about and what was the process um so yeah it started off as an album and you know I put the album out a couple of years ago it's called hands are made for working and mm. the whole idea behind that was something that was therapeutic for me but multifunctional in the sense that it could help other people that were struggling with grief mm. at that point um I had lost my dad and my friend Daisy shortly after I lost a, a friend called Franklin and it just felt like you know reading all the messages that came back from the album felt like there was more to say on this and I could help people more and I could delve into more areas of grief and also I realized that you know being a man and the conditioning of whatever that means growing up had a part to play in how I personally dealt with it and didn't feel right to do another album um, about that topic because there was so much to say and there's only so much you can get into a three-minute song Um, so I started to write a book and yeah, just wrote my thoughts down. Didn't really know how it would end up. Didn't know what the book would be called, but I just started writing about masculinity and grief. Um, and luckily, Harper Collins um, approached me shortly after, and I said, "Yeah, I'm working on this," and and they loved the idea. And um, I had about thirty thousand words that I had written for the book, and then mm. life got really crazy because I dropped an album and I had to tour and that kind of stuff. And I was looking at my my deadlines and thinking there's no way I'm going to make this and so I called up um, a lady called Abby Ahrens who's an amazing 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 writer ghost writer editor and she came on board um, to help me get to my 70,000 words and you know we met up four or five times had really in-depth conversations um, and yeah it was a real partnership right until the very end and, and that's how we got there the funny thing mm. with Abby though is I, I brought her on board because I thought I wouldn't have enough time. And then a couple of weeks later, we went into a pandemic. But I had already signed the contracts. <laughs> <laughs> but she, it's very much your voice, the whole thing. And it, it's kind of interesting because you talk about your childhood and your your father in particular as a man of not exactly few words, but practically zero words. I mean, yeah. I, obviously you adored him and had a you know very good relationship with him, but he had a very different approach to communication, as many men do. I mean, I, I remember with my father, I often felt we didn't always know what to say to each other. I think that is a kind of a traditional masculine stereotype really that a lot of men from lots of different cultures British as well as Ghanaian 
um, have, you know, kind of adopted and felt constrained by. And so you grew up in, in this culture, this family culture, where conversation wasn't a huge thing and speaking about your emotions wasn't a huge thing. And also in wider society, you, one of the central themes of the book, is, as you've just said, is essentially toxic masculinity, that sense that boys are not allowed to talk about their feelings, that they mm. absolutely can't cry, that's the last taboo. And yet people are experiencing often terrible trauma uh violence um often poverty uh, you didn't grow up in abject poverty at all but your your parents worked very hard but there were times where you didn't have all that much your parents did very well for themselves they had that immigrant deal they i think they ended up owning three properties which is absolutely phenomenal mm. but how it the, the kind of gap between that and and you know sort of putting seventy thousand extremely honest words about your feelings out there is so huge does <laughs> it just feel natural to you now I wouldn't say it feels natural, but I would say that I recognize that I am not good at, well, I recognize that it doesn't come naturally to me. And so I work really hard to combat that. And mm. I think self-awareness self is probably, you know, one of the most important things in my life because I don't need to be perfect at everything. I don't need to be the perfect communicator, the perfect writer, you know, perfectly emotionally and mentally healthy because I faced a lot of trauma in my life I am the result of conditioning um there are certain things that have happened to me that mean that I am a product of you know those things that I've been through but if I'm self-aware then I can fight and make sure that I move forward rather than move backwards and now you know having a son has made that all the more important because I want a, my son to be healthier um not just physically, but, you know, mentally, emotionally than, than I am. And so, yeah, I would put the progress down to self-awareness and significant mm. people in my life helping me when I've needed help, whether it was my primary school head teacher or whether it was my youth leader or like a loving family, you know, um, mm. all these people have, have played a part in, in helping me equip myself with those tools. But I think it starts with self-awareness. Mm. You talk in, you mentioned in the book that uh, when you were first invited by Emma to meet her parents, you were kind of panicking madly because you didn't grow up in a household where you had meals around a table with conversation and you kind of didn't know how that worked. And you've said that you really want Ezra to grow up with having proper meals and conversation around a table. How did you, how did you learn the art of conversation? And do you think it's something <laughs> that people should be taught? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I, you know, have completed all modules in the art <laughs> of communication, but I think it's just asking myself, am I, you know, verbally explaining everything that I am internally processing right now? Because I'm the kind of person you ask, how was your day? I'll just be like, it was okay. Sometimes that's all I'm processing, but sometimes I'm processing, well, day was kind of rubbish today. I did X, Y, Z, this happened, that happened, but it doesn't actually make its way out of my head um, and out of my mouth. And so I guess practicing communication has been, it's almost practicing vulnerability with the people that are closest to me or the mm. people that I'm in conversation with the most. Um, mm. So yeah, just contributing to conversation and you know, my wife just make it's because it's deeper friendship, isn't it? It's deeper connectivity. And I'm mm. like, if I don't share, 
what's on my mind and give that person, you know, um, honest, vulnerable information that they're doing with me. I'm starving us of deeper connection. I'm starving us of, of deeper friendship. Um, mm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the best way I learn is thinking about what I'm going to lose out on. You know, if that makes sense. But yes. in terms of scientifically uh, equipping myself with the tools of how to be a great communicator, I'm not sure I'm quite there yet. <laughs> well, I think you're doing pretty damn well, to be honest with you. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the other side of that is kind of less profound, but you could argue as important, which is basic social skills. I mean, I remember writing some years ago about, uh, I think, employers were saying, and this was maybe 10 years ago, slightly less possibly, but obviously, you know, many youngsters are growing up online pretty much. And a lot mm. of their communication is digital. And employers were saying that some of the people they were taking on didn't really have the social skills necessary to be good employees. And a huge part of um, you know, social, basic social skills is just asking people questions, having, making nice conversation, asking people how they are. Do you think mm. that's something that, I know you had great teachers like, you know, Miss Aronson, who kind of pretty much changed your, your life. But do you think that that's something that children should be taught in school if their parents don't teach it? Because clearly many parents don't teach it. Oh, 1000%, you know, 1000%. I think the education system is huge in teaching the art of communication. I mean, when I think about growing up, I, you know, council estate culture, I was raised in that kind of environment. And I felt that in school, teachers, you know, I had an amazing head teacher, Miss Arneson, but teachers can kind of make their minds up about kids really early on and just think, well, he's not really giving me much. So maybe he's just, you know, someone that's disenfranchised. We'll just leave him there and he can do his work in quiet or whatever. We're not really going to invest time and effort into helping him come out of his shell. Now that kid could be, you know, maybe from an abusive family, so is more of a recluse, maybe um, hasn't, didn't read books when he was a, a toddler or whatever growing up, so he's a bit behind the rest. And so I think, yeah, if teachers in the education system don't look at root causes of why kids might be poor communicators or might be slightly recluse or might be slightly reserved, then we run the risk of them having to figure out how to communicate a lot later in life, which means, you know, um, not a very great start um, but yeah I'd agree I think it's important to to get taught that in schools. Mm. I mean the uh, the flip side of that I suppose is that many schools end up being saddled with practically being social workers because there are so many social issues they have to take on and um, pre-austerity obviously there were many many more youth clubs around the country and there was Sure Start and all these things that were wiped out by the Tory government I know one of your missions is to support and inspire and encourage youngsters, particularly from a background like yours. But actually, really, I would say from a background less privileged than yours, because you had two very hardworking, employed mm. parents. And obviously, you know, many children growing up on inner city estates don't have those. Given that we can't force a government to bring back youth centres and youth clubs, even though they should. What do you think practically can be done now to provide the kind of support that that's necessary? Yeah, so I think that the toughest thing when it comes to talking about this is trying to get all the cogs to turn at the same time. Mm. Um, my mum used to say to me, it takes a village to raise a child, right? And 
basically just means that it's everyone's responsibility within the community to provide an environment for a child to thrive. So to answer your question, it does need to be education system operating in the most, um, what's the word? Just functioning in a really positive way and a healthy way in a way that encourages people to thrive. But it also needs to be government legislation making decisions that will benefit young people from other privileged communities. Hopefully that hasn't happens. If it doesn't, it's got to be your parents, your next door neighbors, your, your bus driver, your shopkeeper, everyone looking in the mirror and thinking, what can I do to contribute to a more positive society for young people? Now, for me personally, you know, growing up in that environment, the thing that I valued from um, the most was relatable role models, right? I talk in a book a little bit about this guy that used to dress up in a suit. Uh, I think he worked at JP Morgan at the time. But to me, the the guy that we looked up to for some reason was the drug dealer because he had what was visibly successful to us. The, the big car, like the money, the girls and all that kind of stuff. But if you have like relatable role models, they can also help young people redefine what looks like success do you know what I mean? If I had someone on my estate that says, actually, how the drug dealer acquired these things isn't really the way you want to go in life because these are the repercussions X, Y, Z. But, you know, this guy that wears a suit and goes to work at JP Morgan, he's worked really hard in school. He's learned this, he's learned that and that kind of stuff. But I didn't really have anyone having those kind of conversations. And so I think if we can find relatable role models in society that young people can build relationships with, that'll make a huge difference now obviously structurally politically will bringing back youth clubs help of course it will but like you say we can't wait on the government so until that happens we we need to try and get as many of the cogs to turn at, at the same time as possible mm-hmm. and do you think that black lives matter has certainly changed the conversation are you hopeful that it will actually bring about some positive change I'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction for the moment. I think my worry would be when things get back to normal or a new normal and we're out of the pandemic, will this still be high on the agenda? I think COVID has been so, um, you know, tough and difficult and heartbreaking. But the positive that we can take from it is that the world has stopped and when the world stops people pay attention and I just truly believe that if you know we weren't in a pandemic and everyone was going about their normal lives the George Floyd moment wouldn't have been as huge as it was because I fear that we might have, have missed it but because the world had stopped we could pay attention and I guess my worry is now the conversation is moving in the right direction um, but will that continue after we're out of this pandemic you know the way I view things now right is you know if you're like in a, it's a bit of a weird analogy but when you're in a swimming pool and you're trying to walk in a swimming pool it's really hard to walk in the swimming pool but if there's enough people walking in the same direction it becomes a lot easier and that's what I think is happening now we've, we've almost got just enough people to make real difference to make real change to put real pressure on you know people that are oppressing people and people that believe that inequality should be a thing but it needs to continue uh, once other things, you know, start landing on our plate. Yes, I think that I think that's a really interesting analogy. Actually, I haven't heard that one before. 
I mean, it's you. It's clearly a very central. Well, it's your mission or part of your mission. You are, as you say in the book, also a man of faith. But it's a, a central part of your mission to encourage and inspire youngsters, anyone, to achieve their potential, to find a purpose in life. And you've talked about being a role model, and it's it's a, a responsibility you take very seriously. But I know that you know. I, I talk to a lot of. I've talked to a lot of successful black people who kind of think, you know, do I always have to be a role model? You know, nobody white says they have to be a role model, possibly the odd white working class <laughs> footballer who has to be for or is expected to be for white working class boys. But don't you ever think, you know what, I've really had it with a role model. Can't I just be myself? No, of course I do. I think that a lot, you know, I think today mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about, um, black lives matter i have other things to offer other things of value than just being black but i recognize that even though it's not my responsibility because racism wasn't started by black people unfortunately we're in a position where if we don't try and ignite something then it might not happen and so we have the greater you know the greater goal in mind and and that's why it's important. And, you know, if I speak to a, a black person that says, actually, do you know what? Um, I don't want to talk about this or it's just too much for me. Then I'm completely, I completely understand. There's a lot of trauma, you know. Um, yeah. But just as for me, I don't know. It's just a personal conviction. I know that I used to wake up every single day and just let the days go by and not really know that I was worth something and I had something to give to the world. And so everything I do is for that young person that might feel the same because I know that I was maybe two people away from my life going in a completely different direction and Mm. that's why I feel you know personally convicted but you're right the fight isn't isn't for every black person and I have nothing against anyone that you know thinks it's too traumatizing to be involved with I completely understand And you were brought up like like a lot of African immigrants, sort of pretty much forced. I was forced to go to church as well, but um, uh, but you know, forced to go to church, and then deciding that you you did have a, a real and powerful faith of your own in everywhere and nowhere. You say still no radio, still no record deal. It's like I'm half rapper and half worship leader. And you've said <laughs> in the past that you were too churchy for the grime scene. Do you ever feel that your faith has held you back in terms of your career? Yeah, definitely. I mean, more earlier on than now. I think we live in a very progressive progressive world at the moment. You know, I'm last albums on Radio 1 and I'm doing stuff with Sky Sports and all that kind of stuff. And mm. I think people just recognise that my faith shapes my worldview. It's part of who I am. But, you know, I'm not this Bible-bashing preacher guy or whatever way people can stereotype people of faith, you know. Um, but, yeah, in previous times, there's been times where radio have said no we can't play it because we don't want to ostracize people and that kind of stuff but interestingly enough I think because the world is in such a dire state at the moment anything that offers some kind of hope Mm. or anything that uplifts you know no matter what faith it is people are more receptive to it now because you know it makes you feel good it's nice to know that there's hope it's nice to know that there's light at the end of the tunnel and so yeah, I just think the state of the world at the moment actually lends itself, you know, my music lends itself quite well and being someone that has faith lends itself quite well to that. Very interesting. And and it's interesting, of course, how faith develops in response to tragedy, really, because um, 
you had this terrible trauma when your father died very suddenly when I think you just turned 28 and and then as you say you lost your your dear friend Daisy and your friend Franklin who were your age it's a devastating mm. thing to go through and I think like anyone with a faith at that time you thought essentially how can this happen you know how can God do this to me and then of course the pandemic would you say that your faith is means more to you as a result of all of this I mean I, I know you you say in the book that there were times when you know you were filled with rage about about it all because it's it's hard enough to deal with when you think there isn't a god but when you think there is a god then obviously you're going to feel furious with that god for allowing these terrible things to happen where are you in relation to all of that now and your faith i think i have a more authentic faith now it's not one that's built on a foundation of conditioning from going to church from a young age or from having Christian parents you know for example I never thought I could doubt God or say anything bad in a prayer or say God I don't get why this is going on right now because I just thought you don't really you're not meant to talk to God like that but you know after my dad died you kind of lose all the fear and actually I said well God if you're real then I'm really angry about this situation and that kind of stuff and so I think I have more authentic um a more authentic connection with my faith now, which is good. But, um, you know, I've got to be honest, it means everything to me. It meant a lot before, but now it's literally life or death because, mm. you know, I always think about Father's Days and birthdays and I used to think, wow, my dad feels like, he feels like he's getting further and further away and that really hurts. But when I look at things through a, a faith lens and from a faith perspective and what I believe, I'm like, okay, my dad was a Christian as well. So that means that he's in heaven, hopefully, which means that I am a Christian and I will go to heaven, hopefully. So every year that goes past, I'm actually getting closer and closer to seeing him again. And that makes my faith even more important because I'm like, without faith, what happens to my dad? Does he just, is he just, is he gone forever? Is there no hope of seeing? And all those kind of things, I think it really that helps with and, and becomes really important. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, since my dad passed, the authenticity has been incredible because I can actually ask questions. I can have doubts. I can, I can say this doesn't make sense and not feel like I'm going to get, you know, chastised. And, um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's everything to me now because it's the only hope I've got of seeing my dad again. Mm-hmm. And 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 you even had the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, on your podcast about grief, talking about the loss of his his baby daughter, which must have been absolutely devastating. I mean, what's it like to feel like you're in the position now to to interview the Archbishop of Canterbury? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I guess you know, relationally, I'm like, how did I get from you know the background I come from to doing what I do now and talking to the people I talk to? Um, and my imposter syndromes through the roof, you know, even doing podcasts like this and, and being asked to come and chat to you. Um, cause yeah, I don't, I don't really think of myself as super intellectual. I've just lived a, a life and stuff has happened to me and hopefully it can help people. So I try and be confident with it, but, um, I love listening. Um, the podcast is great because I'm not a great talker, but I'm a great listener. And so mm-hmm. I think when I hear people like, you know, the Archbishop Justin and, and whoever I speak to share their stories, I think it's it's great. You know, I can ask them questions that that their answers can can help people. And that's what I really, really enjoy. 
Mm. And how did your parents react when you won the MOBOs? Um, that was interesting, actually, because up until that point, music, they allowed me to do as a hobby, but mm. they wanted me to get a degree, um, which I did in the end. I got a, a business and journalism degree mm. at the University of Hertfordshire. But that was basically because my mum and dad told me to. And I just thought, right, this is what means that their journey from Ghana to England has been worth it to see me get my degree. And I'm going to give them that. But when I won the MOBA, I think I was maybe 19 at the time, potentially. At the time, it was on TV. I think it was on ITV. And so my mum saw it and, you know, she started calling all her friends. He's on TV and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, all oh, right. So now it's OK because <laughs> I'm on TV. And I think, yeah, when she started seeing the fruits of my labor, then she was a bit more relaxed and she was like, oh, well, you're getting results, you're doing well. So, so go for it if that's what you want to do in life. It's very interesting because I think a lot of I've spoken to, you know, got friends who are children of immigrants. And obviously the immigrant thing is you want your child to be a doctor or an accountant or, you know, a lawyer or something proper and grown up. And uh, yeah. it's almost as if it's only when you get some kind of recognition or award if you take <laughs> yeah. the creative path that it's kind of just about OK. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, but yeah, I'm thankful. She's not as strict as, you know, some of my um, other first generation Brit um friends their parents um but yeah I think you know the degree they've got on the mantelpiece now and now I can do what I want I was interested you're you're a lot of people I know who grew up with either African or Caribbean parents had this sort of matriarchal discipline in the home which was sometimes quite scary um <laughs> do you, what effect because I know you've taught you I mean you're incredibly honest in your book which is one of the many things I like about it you're in incredibly honest about your marriage as well and and how you have been for counseling at times and I think for many people particularly in the, in music traditionally I mean obviously uh, traditional grime although that makes it sound like something from the 17th century but you know whatever <laughs> in recent years was has had uh, a reputation and a, uh, and a completely justified reputation for misogyny and so on but rap and music generally tends to have this very almost romantic picture you know one minute you're on your own or you're a man about town and the next minute you've found the girl of your dreams and it's all perfect and obviously life mm -hmm isn't like that how hard was it for you to be honest about that because that is quite a big taboo to well not exactly a taboo but it's people it's something people particularly young men don't really talk about yeah for sure I, I think the big thing just in general and applies to this is you know when when I lost my dad there was a significant amount of fear that departed with him and mm. so you know these taboo subjects like you know, being an African first generation Brit and counselling being something that's quite taboo anyway and talking about that openly. I wasn't scared of that. Um, being vulnerable about my marriage and for my friends and family to read that it might not be as perfect as it, it seemed. I lost fear about that. Talking about, you know, in the book, I talk about how rap music can result in, in violence and there's potential of you know come back from the rap community and me about why you're betraying us why you're putting us out in a bad light and and my thing is look I want to show the bad side so that we can have a look at the good side and hopefully we can move forward and before yes I would have held my tongue on some of these topics but unfortunately I've seen my dad's body and I've seen how fragile life can be mm. and I want to use my life to make a difference and that means I have to talk about stuff that might be difficult 
to talk about you know I don't profess to have all the answers but I just want us as a society to move forward because you know like grime hip-hop the way it's just a reflection of society society is filled with misogyny society is filled with violence but society is also filled with positivity and respect towards women and equality and we need to try and you know lift up a lot more of those things and and that's why I decided to talk about it but yeah ultimately I lost I lost a lot of fear um, Mm. that I used to carry Mm, very interesting and I, I want to talk a bit more about work because well a because this podcast is sort of largely about work but also because in your message about toxic masculinity it's such a complicated mix but you know part of that is that traditionally men were the breadwinners and as we know there is often high levels of unemployment on some of those inner city estates and quite a lot of children grow up without fathers and don't have very much of a model of uh, working men around them actually and Mm. I remember when I lived off the Woolworth Road, well, a few years ago, I went back, I was writing a piece for the Sunday Times about intergenerational unemployment. And I went back to the Aylesbury estate, which is near where I used to live and asked a lot of children what they wanted to do when they were older. And a lot of them did say footballer, celebrity. And um, and I did think, oh, dear, because yeah. <laughs> clearly not very many are going to manage that. And it's tricky for you because you are a very successful musician I know you've talked about your imposter syndrome but in my experience of interviewing people for many many years nobody feels like a success that's just part of the deal and you're always looking at the next thing that you ought to achieve and you wouldn't be successful Mm. if you didn't have that sort of sense of that itch for greater achievement and inadequacy about what you've done so far but it's a tricky one because you want to encourage and inspire people but you know we also know that not every youngster is going to be a successful rapper how do you steer those conversations about work yeah that's a great question but you know what I actually think things are changing so I can only speak from the perspective of you know a a black man when I was growing up I think you know the what what is it they say they say it's hard to be yourself if you can't see yourself right Mm, and yeah the success of people that looked like us Mm. on TV or in the papers were mainly people that played sports and people that were musicians. Yeah. So it's Dizzy Rascals on MTV bass. It's Kano, it's Wiley, it's 50 Cent, or it's, you know, Paul Ince, John Barnes, Raheem Sterling, whoever it is. But now, you know, when I think about my son, he can, turn on the tv or read the papers and read the fact that you know barack obama was president or kamala Mm. harris is Mm. vice president or you've got your footballers you've got your sports people but also i don't know the head of this bank is a black man and this is his journey and that i just think there's so many more examples and this kind of relates to you know how progressive things have been you know we're not perfect but things have progressed you know the whole black lives matter thing it's it's making people wake up look at organizational structures and so it's not just the guinness effect of white people on the top and then just black people on the bottom and all that kind of stuff there's there's so many more opportunities now and there's so many more examples for young people of today to look at and think oh I can see myself in this role or I can see myself in that role um Mm. so I must admit I am hopeful you know of you know this generation and I'm hopeful of the future but yeah absolutely right when I was growing up it's just because the only definitions of success I can see 
and that jumped out at me was people that looked like me. And I think, you know, if you're white in this country, you can look everywhere. Because, <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? There's, there's white people in all kinds of positions all across the company. And it's very, very normal. But I think the reason why people from inner city communities, particularly first generation Brits or people that aren't from England originally, is because they just can't see themselves. And so it's hard to imagine what you can't see. Mm. I remember when... when um it was very interesting when Obama won. I went to an all-night party. And I remember getting a bus home at about 4 a.m., maybe 5 a.m., which is, of course, when the cleaners are setting off. And in recent years, a higher proportion of them have been Eastern European, but at the time, many of them were black. And honestly, there was this sense already that people were kind of carrying themselves differently. But I remember my friend Rob, who has Jamaican parents, telling his son, who was probably four at the time that the most powerful man in the world was now black and his son was mm. confused because he already he knew he already was because he thought Rob was the most powerful man in the world yeah. <laughs> and, but it did make a difference just as tragically and uh, on the opposite front Trump has made a huge difference with his fascism essentially and and mm. racism but you know thank god at least for the moment there is a shift on that front what about politics um do you do you encourage people, you know, until more youngsters go into politics, uh, you know, black or white, but or or you know any other ethnic minority? But it, I think a lot of youngsters are understandably and rightly passionate about issues like climate change, but less keen mm. on the really very boring stuff of getting yourself elected, playing the political game, which actually is where the power does lie, because that's where the laws lie. And, you know, unless that's why youth clubs are not have been cut to the bone and so many other things. Do you encourage mm. youngsters to go into politics at all? See, I have a very holistic view of the way society should look. So I think that, you know, when I'm talking to young people, it's we've got a... Um, infiltrate all areas yeah that sounds a lot more powerful than it, it needs to sound but we need to be everywhere so yeah there needs to be young people in decision making positions there needs to be young people in parliament there needs to be young people on the streets um any area that we can you know operate in we need to be doing that but i think barriers to that are politically young people have this i don't know what to call it this purity about them that's actually very desirable and for me you know mm. there's some things that I'm I don't know left-wing about and there's some things that I'm right-wing about mm, it's not just <laughs> clear cut you know and I think yeah. young people struggle with committing to something that means that oh this means I'm also committing to this which I actually I'm not a fan of that and that kind of stuff so I think it's difficult but yeah I think across the board we do need people there I think the big thing though in that conversation is class Yes. We need people from different walks yeah. of life in all these positions, because otherwise what you get is, you know, even if you had um, a very diverse, I'm talking racially diverse parliament, but they were all middle class people. That's not like black people aren't monoliths. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Working class people aren't monoliths. So I think people from a, a wide variety of backgrounds, different ways, races, different classes, that kind of stuff would be my dream. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you've talked understandably, uh, well, you've said that the, poli that the police, that's a complicated issue. That same friend of mine called me a couple of months ago and he had just been, he's, he's 55 and he mm. had been stopped by the police and three other cars, three police cars full of policemen 
had stopped mm. him and he's 55 and this has been going on his whole adult life um mm. how do you do you still get stopped by the police obviously you haven't left the house for a year but you know were you to leave that when you uh, you you mentioned at one point i think in your book that you'd been you counted up the number of times you've been stopped and the number of times emma had been stopped and it was basically zero for her and something like 15 for her how yeah. a does that still happen and b how do you kind of manage your emotions when that happens yeah, it doesn't happen as frequently as it used to. I think the last time I was, well, the last time I was stopped, funnily enough, I actually deserved to be stopped. I was speeding, going a bit faster <laughs> than I should have been going. Um, but I think the last time I was stopped was maybe 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. And in terms of managing my emotions, I people have a different view on this. But the way I operate is I think that every action is a reaction so if I feel like a police officer has stopped me because he's profiled me because of unconscious bias I'm going to make sure that in my dealings with him after he's done everything he needs to do I explain to him that this is why I think it's happened and even if he doesn't you know change his mind or his views or admit his wrong on the spot at least I've done my job and Mm. I don't know planting that seed in his head might get him to think and so you know, I've done the whole stage of getting angry every time it happened. You know, when I got married, I found out that I had been stopped maybe 15, 20 times and my wife hadn't been stopped ever. And every time I had been stopped was because I fitted the description of someone that I did something and, you know, my wife never fit the description. And that made me really angry. And I did the whole thing of every time I get stopped, why are you doing this again? All that kind of stuff. But um my faith, yeah, there's one bit in the Bible that I, Jesus is on the cross and he looks, and he prays and he's like, God forgive them because they don't know what they do. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not making an excuse for anyone, but there's some people that actually don't believe that they have unconscious bias or mm-hmm. they don't know that they're playing into a system um, and perpetuating, you know, all these stereotypes and that kind of stuff. So I think I'm at the stage of life, maybe it comes with getting older um, and tired, that I just want to, <laughs> I just want to, equip people with knowledge and help them understand why they might be doing certain things and obviously it's annoying but yeah I'm just always thinking about the greater good wow (laughs) amazing and I mean that that whole kind of thinking through how to respond to things is such a central part of how we all have to manage our lives but also careers and you you talk in the book about rejection and how you still get rejection now and I think the sort of lots of people think that if you are perceived to be successful then you you're there you've reached you've reached the point you don't get rejection anymore but most of the writers and artists I've worked with writers a lot in my life and the rejection is ongoing and uh, I I reviewed a book uh, last year by a writer called Michelle Roberts who has been earning a living as a novelist all her adult life and she had um, a novel rejected by her publisher for the first time mm. and she wrote a memoir about it called Negative Capability which is um, a quote from a le- one of the letters that Keats wrote the poet John Keats and it mm. was very raw I mean it's a beautiful memoir but uh, it talks about the, the huge pain when you've been very good at something and you do get rejected what what strategies have you developed for dealing with rejection? Um, don't know if it's a great one but I tell myself that this life owes me nothing. You know, I watch my parents come over from Ghana, work really hard and life didn't really play them like a great hand, but they made it happen. And Mm -hmm. because of their sacrifice, 
I am able to do the things that I do. But if I never get another opportunity again, like they've already done enough. Everything that I'm doing right now is a bonus, you know? Mm. I think when you're coming from uh, just a background where there's need and you haven't had it handed to you, you always think, oh, at least I'm not in that place anymore. Or, you know, I could be, it could be so much worse. And so perspective is huge. Um, I've got family that love me. I've got friends that I can be vulnerable with and that kind of stuff. And even though the pain of rejection really hurts and it's painful, I always tell myself I was fine before the opportunity landed on my lap. And now that the opportunity has been taken away, I'm going to be fine after. I had this the other day, actually. What what happened? It's like I was going about my normal life. Everything was fine. And then my manager sent me an email. These people want you to do this. It's X amount, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yes, this is great. The brand that I really love with all that kind of stuff. And a week later, they said, actually, they've gone with someone else. Yeah. And I was really upset. And yeah. I'm like, wait, hold on a minute. Before I got that initial email, I was absolutely fine. Yeah. It's only because an opportunity was presented. And then I wanted it so much. And now it's gone. I'm feeling like this. So I think perspective is is a huge coping mechanism for me. God, I wish I'd had your perspective when I was your age, <laughs> I really do. It's unbelievably grown up and mature and wise. It really is. It's not easy to do though. As I, you know, relay it, I make it sound really easy, but it's a it's a it's a struggle, a daily struggle. And I know the truth of it, but it's it's hard to live it out. But yeah, as long as I land back at the truth of it at some point, I'll be all right. And what do you think? The the world obviously is changing incredibly fast, and it was it was changing before the pandemic with lots of industries in decline, not least journalism and you know, very tough when, when people ask me, you know, want to become a journalist now, the whole world is so very different to when I did that it's hard to know how to advise people. And um, in on the podcast last week, I had an academic and she also has lots of people say, oh, you know, how do I get a career like yours? And she said, well, actually, now it's very different because in lots of ways, a- academics are now fundraisers, you have to raise the funds to do a lot of your research mm. work. And practically everything is changing and the rise of AI will change things even more. Given that most young people are now going to have to have several careers in the course of their life, or at least do several different jobs in the course of their life, what skills do you think it's most important for them to develop and how do you think they can acquire them? I think adaptability is a huge skill. I think, you know, maybe back when I was growing up even though I just made myself sound really old but it was almost like you're a doctor or you're a lawyer or you're a rapper or you're you fit very neatly into a specific box now when I look at you know job roles what some of my friends are doing families young people that I know they're doing like four or five different things even if they have one job title yeah they have like four different things within that that job title. So I think, you know, making sure that you pick up as many skills as you possibly can and try and see, you know, career and work as more of a fluid thing rather than this one thing that I have to train for and commit to for the whole of my life. Um, I think that will help. The other thing I think is really important is how we define success, you know, and this is really hard to do, but I had to learn the hard way that success isn't a house a car money job 
opportunities, that kind of stuff. Now, I understand I'm saying this from a privileged position. It's much easier to say that when you have acquired some of that stuff and experienced it and that kind of stuff. But now I know that success is doing the best you can with what you have and seeing what happens. You know, it's not this destination of when I get there, I'll be successful because I thought that about music and now I'm on my however many albums and I've got to where I wanted to get to. And there's always something more that you want to achieve because mm. everything you're exposed to opens your eyes even wider. And you're like, now I want this. But I think, listen, it's more about who you're becoming as a person and what your character is like than what you're actually doing, because that might change all the time. You might stick at one thing, but what you're doing is going to change all the time. And if you're adapting, you'll be OK. But it's more about are you being, you know, the kind of person that you'll be proud of when you're 60, 70, 80 and looking back on your life. Um, but yeah, that's all I'd say. That's that. absolutely wonderful. That's how my, that's actually what, um, I've got a book coming out next year and that's pretty much the theme of my book. That's how my oh, parents brought us up. Um, we were, you know, I'm sure I failed to live up to it all the time, but my parents certainly brought us up to believe that the most important thing in life was to be a decent person and that's what I believe. And yeah, hundred uh, percent. What's your book called? It sounds like something I'd love to read. <laughs> are you um, are you allowed to say it? Yes, of course. It's it's it will. It's called um, Outside the Sky Is Blue. And um, amazing. Uh, but I also send you a copy of my current book, which is called The Art of Not Falling Apart, which um, has quite similar themes, um, and it's right. quite easy to read. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And what in terms of what you would like to focus on more when the pandemic is over and life goes back to something more like normal what are your kind of immediate ambitions without a shadow of a doubt and I'm aware that some of my answers might seem a bit airy-fairy and that's not at all what I'm aiming for but for me I want to savor I want to live in the moment and be present because I've realized I've done hundreds and hundreds of shows but I haven't been present at hundreds of hundreds of shows it's either been oh yeah we're doing this again back at work but now I'm just going to savor every single moment whether I'm writing a book in the studio writing music meeting people um yeah I'm just going to try and be as present as I possibly can be um because I've realized you know it's 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 just so hard to do that you know like I remember when we first got married and I speak a bit about love languages in the book and my mm -hmm. wife loves quality time right and I thought we were having loads of quality time because I was in the house and she was in the house, even though we were doing different things. <laughs> we're together. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But being present is a completely different thing. It's, you know, putting your phone in airplane mode or um, looking into your, someone's eyes when you're talking to them or just really, really soaking in the moment. And I think, you know, that's the biggest lesson that I've, I've learned from the pandemic and one that I'm going to um, try and do when, when we get back out. Well, that's a great lesson for us all. It's been really wonderful to talk to you, Isaac, and uh, I feel really inspired and I have no doubt that listeners will be too. And uh, when you are doing live gigs again, I will buy a ticket for one of your, <laughs> one of your I'm gigs. Down. I'll buy your book as well. I'll buy your I'll book as well. i at you in the front row. <laughs> thank you so much, Isaac. It's been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at Queen Christina underscore 
and on Instagram where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and doing work that works for all of us, and I hope you'll join me again next week.